The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. In 2019, the New York Times put together a collection of essays titled The 1619 Project. The essays address the role that slavery played in America's founding and the ways that it still impacts society today. One of the essays examined the links between America's market economy and slavery, arguing that slave labor produced much of the early wealth of America and that, quote, in order to understand the brutality of American capitalism, you have to start on the plantation. Slavery is one of the topics that has been most examined by economic historians. Robert Fogel, for instance, won a Nobel Prize for his, in economics for his work on slavery. What have economic historians found, and is this consistent with the conclusions of the 1619 Project essay? Joining me on the show today is Dr. Phil Magnus. He's an economic historian with the American Institute for Economic Research. Dr. Magnus earned a PhD in, from George Mason University and taught at Berry College before joining AIER. He's written numerous scholarly and popular articles, and he's author of a book called The Project, the, I'm sorry, The 1619 Project, A Critique. And this book has been uh, the number one selling book on economic history at Amazon.com several times since its release. Welcome back to the show, Phil. Thanks for having me. So before we get started, tell us, uh, tell our viewers a little bit about the 1619 Project. It's actually a, a collection of a bunch of different essays. I mean, we're not going to be talking about the whole thing there. Just uh, tell us a, a little bit about what, what uh, we're going to be talking about. All right, so the 1619 Project came out in August of 2019 as a special edition of the New York Times Magazine. And as you mentioned, it uh, contained about a dozen feature essays and a whole bunch of uh, shorter vignettes that explored different topics in the history and legacy of slavery and racism in the United States. And since the beginning, uh, really two essays have uh, caught most of the attention of uh, the controversy around the 1619 Project. And one of those, uh, far more than the other, that was the lead essay by Nicole Hannah-Jones. But I've argued basically since the project came out that the weakest link in the entire uh, endeavor of the New York Times is the essay on capitalism and slavery by Matthew Desmond. And that's been the main focus of uh, my own criticisms, although I've worked on some of the other areas, but the main focus of our conversation today. And this was the essay that, uh, you know, really did some economics or looking looking at some uh, research by some historians uh, on uh, a group called some of the I think the new history of capitalism uh, at least as they call themselves so tell us a little bit about that because that was the research that I think that uh, uh, Mr. Desmond was drawing on right so, so a little bit of background on Desmond is that he's a sociologist at uh, Princeton University and I was struck immediately when this came out in print, he was a very odd choice to write the essay on the economics of slavery uh, for the main reason that he has zero prior scholarly work in this subject matter. Uh, so he, he was selected by the New York Times for reasons that I still haven't gotten a clear explanation of. But what he did is rather than uh, take the time to research this very complex and deep subject matter that uh, economists have been working on 
um, in a concerted effort for more than 50 years. This is something that has thousands of papers and books written on it. Uh, one of the single most studied subjects of economic history is the economics of slavery. Uh, but rather than familiarize himself with that, uh, he went to a very small, tight-knit, almost echo chamber group of historians that refer to themselves as the new historians of capitalism. Uh, this is a development uh, in really about the last decade or so of the academic literature on slavery. And they work on some other areas of capitalism, but slavery is far and away the most uh, prominent. Uh, but what it is, it's a, a group of a couple dozen historians, almost all of them are at elite and Ivy League institutions, that around uh, 2010 and onward have started to uh, write books that um, basically argue that American capitalism and slavery are wedded at the hip, mm -hmm. that they're tied together, and uh, that this is a mechanism, a driving instrument of American economic development uh, was slavery, and slave produced cotton in particular. And as a result of that, uh, all features that derive from capitalism since the time slavery was abolished in 1865 are both infused with and, uh, and their more ideological moments tainted by the horrors of slavery. No, slavery was uh, a despicable practice in, in human history, so we're not going to uh, even you know, uh, debate that part of it. It's uh, regrettable that, that humans uh, ever did this. And it is an unfortunate part of our, our nation's history. At the level, at the, you know, our American founding on one hand has these uh, great documents like the Declaration of Independence, and yet the author of the Declaration also owned slaves at the same time, so there's um, probably like all people, our nation is, is not perfect, and, it, and definitely some, you know, a, a really unfortunate uh, fact that we had slavery. And, you know, but it also raises a very important question for those of us who, who pray, often praise America's economic system as uh, having delivered the highest standard of living in the world. Uh, just historically, how much of a connection is there, and like how 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 much truth is there to statements like you know, for instance, that American slavery is necessarily imprinted on the DNA of American capitalism, and that the uh, the, the source of America's initial wealth was really the the, the plantation. Um, these are really important questions, uh, especially for people like me who extol the virtues of our economic system. And then also for, for other issues like, you know, with regard to like reparations for slavery or, you know, whether uh, American, whether capitalism is necessarily inherently racist and in, in, to, to get rid of racism, we, you know, we would, we need to have a, a fundamental economic over, uh, overhaul. So, I mean, th these are important questions, right? That's absolutely the case. And Desmond's essay, in addition to writing on this subject, it's an advocacy essay. Uh, quite a few pieces of it read like they're more tailored to 2020-era progressive left political objectives than actually being an, an analysis of slavery. And a lot of it is uh, he's enamored with income redistribution, uh, seems to be of the mindset that uh, moving toward a more socialized healthcare system, uh, issues that are, are much more wedded to our current political climate than uh, the historical topic. So uh, it's clear that he's using the past as an, uh, to make an argument in the present day for those things. But you know, I, I believe, and I think you would agree, I mean, I think there is some objective history out there. And so it's important to try to, as best we can, you know, learn what, what the facts are. And even if, you know, even if sometimes they're unpleasant, you have to, I have to know what was happened in the past to be able to pro provide perspective. And so I think that's a, a big part of what you were trying to do here in, in your book. And we want to get, get into that. And uh, I mean, so first off, 
there was a, one set of claims that Desmond raises in his essay that's saying like many of the pr current practices uh, of uh, American capitalism can be traced back to, uh, or supposedly having their origins on, on the plantation. Even the uh, things like uh, the low rate of unionism in the United States compared to other uh, developed economies, uh, things like the way man, uh, work uh, employers monitor their employees today, and, and even like uh, accounting practices uh, allegedly came there. Now we'll, we'll then get into the more, much more important question about the wealth. But you know, um, you know how, how how do you react to some of the, these charges that like? Everything we see about us in, in our economy today uh, is, is a product of sort of like how masters try to uh, work their slaves on the plantation. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll be blunt on this. I think this is one of the essays where Desmond's uh, ignorance of the literature really shows through in some fairly embarrassing ways, um, even levels of incompetence that show up here. Uh, he does try to make the claim that practices like accounting that are used today because they were, uh, accounting was also used on the plantations, uh, that this, uh, there's some sort of lineal connection between the two. And one of the first things that I noticed and pointed out about uh, Desmond's essay is he has a passage where he basically says that uh, if you use Microsoft Excel spreadsheets today, you're using a practice that traces back to the plantations and their accounting books. And then he goes to cite this other book by Caitlin Rosenthal that's on the accounting practices of the plantations. Uh, but it turns out he actually misread the book. So I opened it up and looked at the uh, the page in the book where this uh, uh, apparently came from, and Rosenthal declares outright, says, I am not claiming this is an origin story. I am not asserting that Microsoft Excel is a descendant of the uh, plantation accounting books. And yet Desmond, I guess, misread that, put it into print, and the New York Times refused to even correct that minor uh, little passage. They said, well, it's an interpretive difference. Uh, so there's kind of a, uh, an oddity going on here with uh, um, error mixed with encourageability by the Times to even address that error. But uh, even the factual claim here is problematic because we know that double entry accounting doesn't originate on the plantations. If anything, the plantations are late adopters to it. It goes all the way back to the banking uh, families of 15th and 16th century Italy. Uh, mm -hmm. That's where most of the accounting practices that we deal with. And this is a well-developed, documented part of economic history. Uh, even beyond that, simply using accounting practices and using managerial techniques that come from uh, uh, various strategies for uh, managing a business today, uh, it doesn't mean that there's a genealogical story that this comes from the plantations uh, any more than the fact that they used accounting books in the Soviet Union's gulags makes that uh, part of capitalism. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like a, a, a reduction that could be taken to some fairly absurd territory here if we follow the logic here. Anywhere that uses an accounting book and anywhere that uses managerial practices uh, is said to be capitalistic. Uh, you have some of the most unfree, least capitalist societies in human history still use accounting because they need some sort of a mechanism to deal with the fact that scarcity exists to allocate goods and resources. And in fact, as we see in the Soviet example and we see in centrally planned economies, uh, accounting attains an even heightened level of importance. Uh, because of the complexity of central planning when you take a price mechanism out of the equation. If you don't have prices, you need to come up with other means to allocate uh, resources. 
and that entails a need for accounting, but no one would claim that that necessarily makes them capitalistic. So it's a mm -hmm. really uh, kind of flimsy, superficial argument that Desmond's embraced here, and he's run with it. Okay, so then we want to get into the uh, the wealth part of the story, and to what extent uh, slavery helped create the, the wealth of the United States. And, and that's obviously important because if, if you know our, our current standards of living uh, have uh, or trace to that, that's uh, very you know re regrettable. Um, but there was at least a, there's there's on the surface uh, some pla some plausible link because cotton was a very important crop in, in the uh, eighteen in the eighteen hundreds uh, the, the first half of the nineteenth century and, and you know textile mills were, had just come in in, in England and you know, uh, the United States and and they were revolutionizing and improving people's lives so cotton was a very important product in those days right. Yeah, so cotton is absolutely an important product and one of the major uh, sectors of the U.S. economy in that time, but it's a sector among many major sectors. It's nowhere near the, uh, the level of importance that these new historians of capitalism assign to them. And one of the critiques I've offered uh, is to look back historically, uh, this claim about cotton despite them being the new historians of capitalism, it's a, not a new claim that cotton was the driver, the engine of American wealth. This was actually a talking point that emerged in the 1850s and early 1860s in the United States South as an advocacy position for slavery, kind of a propaganda position for slavery. Uh, they called it King Cotton Theory for a reason. Mm -hmm. uh, they asserted that cotton was of such important and immense economic value to the United States and global economy that no one would dare make war upon slavery. No one would dare try to undermine the engine of our wealth because the whole world would fall into recession and, and economic shambles if anyone attempted this. And the Southerners actually believed this. There were speeches in the U.S. Senate. Uh, James Henry Hammond and Louis T. Wigfall are, are, are pro-slavery Southern senators. They both get up and announce that cotton is king and it waves his scepter over the entire world economy. And if you challenge cotton, you challenge slavery, you undermined the basis of the engines for wealth in the world that day. And the Confederacy, when it breaks away from the United States, it secedes, it, it attempts to form an independent country built around an economic theory of King Cotton. They thought cotton was so important that the rest of the world would come to the Confederacy's help and fight the Union armies for them. They thought Britain and France could be offered privileged deals of access to Southern cotton, and they wouldn't dream of, of uh, not even just sitting the war out, uh, they wouldn't dream of associating anything with the Northern side because to do so would be to make war upon cotton and bring economic ruination to them as well as the United States. And it turns out that didn't happen. Quite the opposite happened. Britain and France sit the war out. Now, you, you made reference to it is that uh, cotton was not as important as you know, certainly the, some of the Southern thought, but also as some of the uh, new historians of, of capitalism uh, seem to think it was, that there was a, uh, a basic confusion, a basic uh, straight out error in, in, in some of this research that's uh, worth pointing out. Absolutely, and this comes from the work of a historian by the name of Ed Baptist, and Baptist is a centerpiece of Matthew Desmond's essay. He's probably the historian that, that Desmond relies most heavily on from this group. Well, he wrote a book called The Half Has Never Been Told. Again, you know, these guys are enamored with their own novelty, even though they're kind of reviving unwittingly this old uh, uh, Confederate King Cotton theory. Uh, but what Desmond does in his book is he purports to calculate 
the percentage of antebellum gross domestic product uh, that's associated with the cotton industry. Uh, so basically trying to calculate how much of a share of the U.S. economy before the Civil War came from cotton. And he goes through some very unusual and creative math of adding up all the different sectors of, uh, that are involved in cotton production. So it's not just the price of cotton itself, the production of cotton itself, but he also asks, well, how much was spent on trains to transport cotton or ships to, uh, to move it up canals? Uh, he looks at the financial instruments. He looks at uh, uh, the tools that are used for cotton cultivation. And what he ends up doing is he adds all of these numbers up together and puts that in the numerator, but then he gets the gross domestic product of the United States and keeps that uh, fixed in the denominator and eventually gets to the point where he declares that 50% of American economic activity prior to the Civil War was tied up in cotton production. And now, that's that sounds like a very bold claim. <laughs> right. That that that's a, a, a sort of basic fundamental mistake that like because uh, you know, as as our hopefully our principals of macro students will be able to say that economic you know that GDP is the, uh, the market value of, of currently produced goods and services, uh, final Absolutely. goods, final goods and services, final not goods. not the, yeah. all these intermediate goods, right? Yeah, so th this is Macroeconomics 101. It's the, the first lesson that you give when you talk about how you define GDP. It, it only counts final goods, the finished product. And the, and the logic behind this is all the intermediate steps are captured in that price. Right. So when you're adding them up, uh, if you added up all the intermediate steps, you end up double, triple, or in some cases even quadruple counting mm -hmm. uh, the value of all these uh, component steps and that's essentially what Baptist does, is he commits a freshman level Econ 101 mathematical error and presents this in a book that's coming out of an Ivy League historian on a top university press. And strangely, no one caught this in peer review. Strangely, this statistic has actually been quoted in testimony before the United States Congress uh, to make the case for slavery reparations. And uh, it's implicit in the background of, uh, of this new history of capitalism literature that people like Matthew Desmond are relying on for the 1619 project. Now there's an, another part of the story about uh, production of cotton that they, they draw on, they mentioned that there's a, you know, over the course of 1800 and 1860, there was a 400% improvement in the uh, productivity of, of growing cotton. And in the essay, Desmond attributes this to, well, the, the the people running plantations were particularly ruthless, and so that American yeah. slavery was particularly and uniquely ruthless, and was able to uh, squeeze these extra uh, productivity growths out, out out of the slaves by mistreating them. And that 400% number, I think, is accurate, but the interpretation yeah. is is somewhat questionable, right? Yeah. So the 400% number is absolutely true. The cotton industry in the United States grew between 1800 and roughly 1860 by 400%. It's a, it's a massive expansion of that industry. What uh, Desmond does is he again goes to our friend Ed Baptist, who wrote in this book, The Half Has Never Been Told. Uh, Baptist came up with something that's referred to in the literature as the calibrated torture or whipping machine thesis. And this is a big uh, topic of the new history of capitalism crowd. They claim that cotton production uh, increased through the successive refinement of the ability to use torture mechanism, beatings, whippings, uh, other punishment to extract greater and greater amounts of labor out of slaves. 
which sounds, it's, it's actually a very horrific uh, thesis here, and no one's denying the brutality of slavery either, but, but Baptists is specifically claiming that there's a causal connection between more intense whippings and beatings and more cotton yield that comes out over this period. And what he does is he looks in the economic history literature and he sees the fact that yes, 400% increase occurred over that 60 year period. And he gets this from a paper from uh, two economic historians, Alan Olmsted and Paul Rohde. Uh, they wrote a paper where they document this growth. But what Baptist does is he completely ignores the second half of, of Olmsted and Rohde's paper where they actually go through and they document the reason why cotton grew in that period and he substitutes it in with this own unsubstantiated claim about calibrated whipping. It turns out if you actually read the literature and you study the statistics, the reason cotton grew was not because slave owners became more efficient at whipping through supposedly capitalistic mechanisms as Baptist claims. The real reason that cotton grew that fast over that short period of time is that uh, farmers were experimenting with different seed strains. Uh, the technology of the seeds that were being planted in the fields, what they would do is they'd, they'd cross the seeds together to find uh, uh, bigger yield crops or crops that were more robust to the weather and more robust uh, to insects and all the things that can ruin them. And over that period of about 60 years, the improvement in the technology of the seed accounted for almost all of the increase in the cotton yield. Now, there's another way we could evaluate the claim that this, you know, slavery was necessary to grow cotton, and that's by sort of like looking what happened after emancipation. Absolutely. And um, if it was the case that slavery was necessary to grow cotton, then you, 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 could have, you should have expected some pretty major changes in, in the, uh, the supply of cotton in the years afterwards, Absolutely. and that this should be able to show up in, in prices. So tell us a little bit about this and, and how this uh, is relevant for, for our story here. Well, and this brings back the King Cotton theory. The, uh, the Southerners, the Confederates during the Civil War were saying, if you attack slavery, you take slavery away, our cotton industry is going to collapse because this is the only way that we can produce this, this crop. Uh, it's the foundation of our economic system. What well, turns out, uh, when the South is cut off by the blockade of the Civil War, all the textile mills, and not only the North, but, uh, but of Europe, they go to other sources. Uh, England in particular, it turned to Egypt and India and some of the Caribbean islands. They started growing cotton in different ways without slavery. After the Civil War, cotton production resumes again in the, in the United States. No slavery, no slavery around, and I'm not saying that the conditions of of small tenant farms are, are ideal. There, there are many problems right. there, but it turns out to be the case that slavery is not this essential tool, this essential uh, institution that's necessary for cotton production. And in fact, cotton production grows after slavery. It becomes uh, more efficient, better, uh, higher yield after slavery, not only in the US, but worldwide. So the whole causal claim that slavery was the necessary instrument for cotton production turns out to be uh, uh, based on an economic fallacy. Uh, and we see this in, in, in unicausal explanations for economic growth across multiple industries. Uh, so there are other studies that say uh, things like uh, if we attribute the growth of the United States to railroads, uh, and if railroads had never occurred, then the Industrial Revolution would have failed. Well, that turns out to be false. <clears throat> and the reason that that is false is because there's always substitutions 
to right. other technologies, close technologies. So, so uh, imagine a counterfactual world in which there's no cotton plant. There's no uh, uh, means of making clothing out of cotton. It's just never developed. Does that mean that uh, there would be no textile industry? Absolutely not. They would have turned to other things like wool. Mm -hmm. And we see that wool turns to, out to be another major mechanism of the textile mills of New England, of, uh, of Europe. Uh, so so the, the, the question of the counterfactual is useful from an economic purpose because it illustrates that cotton is not this uh, unicausal driver of growth and driver of wealth that uh, these historians have presumed it to be. Now, we, we've done, we've delved into some technical economics here, but you know, th there's another way to, to uh, evaluate the, the, the claim that slavery is driven uh, uh, American, and I guess also by implication British, uh, uh, increases in, in standards of living that we've observed over the last 200 years that's been dubbed the Great Enrichment. And, and that is, uh, slavery's existed throughout human history. It's only been in the last 200 years that slavery has been abolished. And yeah. arguably, if slavery was the source of such tremendous wealth, surely uh, we, we should have seen this hockey stick level of growth that we see when you look at uh, the average uh, or per capita GDP across the world, that we should have seen this uh, hockey stick start to curve up some point in, in the thousands of years in which we, you know, humans uh, had slavery. It's only been in the last 200 years when we've abandoned slavery and, and, and moved to markets that, that we've seen this great takeoff in wealth, right? Yeah, uh, and that's absolutely the case. So, so prior to these new historians of capitalism coming along and unintentionally rehabilitating King Cotton theory, uh, slavery was seen as like one of the last relic throwbacks to an earlier feudal style uh, system of economic production. Uh, feudalism, like the medieval lord living in the castle and the, the serfs that are bound to the land working around them. And it, actually, if you read the records from the slave owners themselves, they view themselves as the successors to the feudal lords, not the industrialists of the capitalist north. So it, it, it's a big question here uh, of, of what slavery could produce. Uh, the fact that uh, this, the, this feudal-style system of economic production uh, never really took off and industrialized is, again, its own testament uh, that this is really kind of a, a throwback, antiquated relic to the old economy, not the forefront of the new economy that the uh, historians have tried to make it out to be. Now, we only have a few minutes left, but I do want to touch on something because a, a number of charges have been raised to suggest that the, some of the intellectual advocates for capitalism um, you know, we're also somehow in favor of, of slavery. And, and that part of the intellectual history, I think, it need, needs to be brought up because it's also, I think, quite unfair to, to people really sort of mischaracterizing people's, uh, the, the early advocates for, for capitalism, which I guess we would call liberals at the time, the, the exactly. liberal tradition. They were not pro-slavery, were they? Not at all, and this goes all the way back. If we want to consider Adam Smith as like the uh, the forefather of capitalism, uh, and, and really a certain strain of capitalism, kind of the the free market laissez-faire theory approach derives out of Smithian economics. What well, turns out, Adam Smith was an abolitionist. He wrote several essays, gave lectures denouncing attacking slavery, and uh, several of his successors. Uh, especially in the UK, all the way up to people like Richard Cobden, who's uh, very active at the time of the Civil War, the great free trade advocate in Parliament, he's also an abolitionist. 
And by the time of the American Civil War, uh, the abolition movement was seen as intellectually associated with the followers of Adam Smith, uh, the followers of free trade. Frederick Douglass even goes to the UK to study the free trade movement there out of Cobden, uh, the fight against the corn laws to adapt those tactics to the abolition movement in the United States and declares himself basically a free market free trader as well as an abolitionist. So historically, the people that were the advocates of laissez-faire theory and the free market tradition in the 19th century were very closely associated with abolitionism. And then on the flip side, you go to the pro-slavery um, arguments in the 19th century. They viewed capitalism as hostile to slavery. Uh, so the, the, the most famous example of the United States is a guy by the name of George Fitzhugh, who I talk about in the book. Uh, he's a pro-slavery theorist in the 1850s. He writes two book-length essays and, and, and several longer uh, or se several shorter pieces uh, espousing a slave-based economic system. And he opens the first and most famous of these by declaring that capitalism, effectively, is at war with all types of slavery everywhere. He says, if we want to preserve slavery, we need to toss the books of Adam Smith and Jean-Baptiste Say and these free market economists into the fire, because if we follow their doctrine, we will bring disorder to the world. We will undermine the entire slave system. Well, thank you very much for joining us and, and uh, providing some insight on, on these issues. Uh, and thank you for joining us and join us again next time for another eConversations. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University.